Is this on? Yes. Yes? Okay, good. Well, we'll be looking in particular tonight at verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. And I'll read them again to you. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And God indeed was faithful, sorry, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the home firm to the end. Now if I asked you tonight, who is the greatest Old Testament prophet? I don't know what your answer would be, but there is a right answer. This isn't... uh, The right answer is John the Baptist, not Moses, if you thought so. And the reason for that answer is that Jesus himself says so. If all is born of women, there is none greater. Now, to be fair, one of the reasons why John the Baptist is the greatest is a bit like why comets have tails. If you've ever seen a comet, it's not like a puppy dog or a cat. It doesn't naturally have a tail. It's just a bit of rock and ice. But as it comes towards the sun, the energy from the sun forms a tail behind it. And the closer it gets, the brighter it is. And out of all the prophets in the Old Testament, none came as close as John the Baptist. He was right there. He wasn't telling the people eventually, you know, there will be Emmanuel, there will be someone coming. He said, prepare the way, he's here. And he saw Christ himself and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Truly, there was none greater than John the Baptist. And yet John the Baptist is special. Um, If you ever watch a play or a movie or read a book where there are different acts, sometimes there's a huge uh, change of location or time. And so that you don't think these are two different things I'm watching, they'll bring someone from one act into the next just to introduce things, make things comfortable, and then they'll disappear. And John the Baptist was that one. He pointed to Christ. He knew that Christ was increased, he must decrease, and he leaves. And so strictly speaking, John is sort of straddles the two Testaments. But if we are talking about strictly the Old Testament, I think the ver- an answer would be Moses. There is no one like Moses in the Old Testament. King David comes close, but part of what makes King David great is they were expecting a son to come. But Moses, no one's expecting another Moses, are they? And yet, look at the life of Moses. Moses is the one who starts the scriptures off. He writes the first five books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which are in our Bibles. And look at his life. Soon in December, you'll probably be looking at the life of Christ. And look at how it parallels the life of Christ in many ways. He's born, and there's an attempt to kill him along with other infants. And God saves him using Egypt itself. He grows up as royalty. He's the son of the king. And yet he chooses to identify with God's weak people. He goes out there into the wilderness of Midian and there God prepares him so that he can come back and proclaim God's message of deliverance. And yet 
he's fought on two fronts. He's fought by the Egyptians, the pagans, the Gentiles, and he's fought by his own people who don't believe him. And in spite of all that, he leads God's people out there. And you know, you have that scene in the Old Testament, they're at Sinai, and the people don't want to meet God. He said, we're going to die. Moses, you go. And on their behalf, he meets God. And he comes down, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And Moses also, God hides him in the rock so that he can see his glory. But he says, you can't see my glory straight or you'll die. You can see my back, as it were. And he gives Israel those two signs, doesn't he? The Passover and circumcision, which marked them out. They were the signs of the old covenant. And, you know, if you went to the Old Testament, and you went to an Israelite, and you said, tell me how God saved you. Tell me how God redeemed you. Tell me about God as Savior. You know how they'd start it off? They'd say, well, our fathers were slaves in the land of Egypt. Because in the Old Testament, the capital R, redemption, is God saving them out of Egypt. And that sometimes doesn't occur to us because we think of it in purely spiritual terms. And to be sure, there was something spiritual about it. If you remember, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't say, let all the people go, as many movies and other things show. He says, let them go and worship for three days. That's all. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? And it becomes, he challenges God himself. There is a national element. God forms a nation out of these people. There is a land where he takes them to. There is physical prosperity he gives them. And our redemption is similar. We have only tasted the first fruits of it. We look to a new heavens and a new earth where we will have a total redemption. A redemption with no sickness, no death. We will have one kingdom of God. There will no more be war. And we do not see it yet, but at the same time, we don't shorten our redemption to purely spiritual things. God renew all of creation that has been touched by sin. You look at his shadow over the whole of the Old Testament, this Colossus, Moses, you know, Joshua. He leads the people down, he divides the land and says according to what had been said to serve Moses. They build a tabernacle, they pitch it, they divide everything up just as was told to Moses. I remember in Ben Peace to Judges, this downward spiral and one after they keep breaking God's law, God punishes them, then God sends his judge and delivers them. Eventually we come to the kings, and the good kings are the kings who obey God's law, and the bad kings are the ones who disobey, and God brings judgment on his people, and still it's the law of Moses. You look at the prophets, one way to look at the prophets is God is sending his lawyers saying, you've broken my covenant, and what they're referring to is God's law given to Moses. You've broken these things. You're not following these things. If you keep at this, God is going to scatter you abroad. And he does, because they will not listen. And yet look at the prayers of Nehemiah, of Daniel, of these people in exile. It is again appealing, Lord, you said that you will scatter us in judgment, but if we turn to you, you will bring us back. How long, O Lord? And these are the cries. Again, Moses' shadow lasts over it. Now, to be fair, Moses didn't you know, write the Ten Commandments. They're not his original work, but it's through his ministry all these things happen. Even today, if you ever look at religious beliefs of celebrities who are of Jewish faith, they don't believe the Torah. They don't believe what is there, but they say, we still practice. The shadow of Moses is still there to this day. Even behind 
a lot of Western democracies, the Ten Commandments and all those are still lie behind them. And we can't escape it, can we? And I said that no one's expecting another Moses, but to be fair, they expected it once, just once, because if I turn to it, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says something. Moses is telling the people about God raising a prophet just like him, and he says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him shall you hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, and all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And all the way to Jesus' time, when they go to John the Baptist, and he say, are you, are you the Christ? No. And then they say, are you the prophet? The prophet. They were expecting this great prophet to come, another Moses. And so you see how important Moses was there in the Old Testament. There isn't another person like him. But as this passage shows us, he is a servant in God's house. There is a sense where if God, and I'm sure many times he wished God had said this to him, said, continue to be a shepherd in Midian. That's all you have to do. He would have to obey. He's a creature. He's obeying his creator. It's not, the greatness is not in him. And he was a servant in God's house. He himself had to enter. He had to be a part of God's people. It wasn't the house of Moses. It was the house of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Christ Jesus, no matter what a colossus Moses is, he is nothing compared to Christ. Christ Jesus outdwarfs him like the sun does a grain of sand because Christ Jesus is a son. He's not a servant. And he's not just in God's house. He's over God's house. It is his birthright. And if you compare his life to Moses, it's so much greater, isn't it? Yes, God delivers him there and he calls his son out of Egypt when Herod wants to kill the infants. But he's royalty from David's seed and his throne is forever and ever. He identifies with God's people who are sinful and fallen, not because he has to, but out of that divine love. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He forgives the woman accused of adultery. He is God showing us his love in his own son. You know, he meets God there on the mountain of Calvary on our behalf. Because if you and I had to meet God there in judgment and bear all that our sins deserved, and yet he took our sins upon himself, and Moses died for his own sins. He never entered the promised land. Yet Christ Jesus died for our sins that we might enter heaven itself. Christ Jesus is so much greater. What is more is we do not speak of Christ Jesus in the past tense only. His ministry continues. There he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding for us. And one day he will call us home. Not only is Christ Jesus over God's house, He's the cornerstone of God's house. He is the firstborn among many brethren. Not only is he the cornerstone of God's house, 
He is the one for whom the house is built. He is the bridegroom for whom the bride is prepared. And as you can say with the Apostle Paul, from him and for him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Moses spoke of the things to come. And as you go, you might skip over a lot of the Old Testament law. You might think, oh, what's this about, you know, if you've got a spot in your arm, you do this. And if it's on your wall, you do that. And then you wait so many days and you go, it's so detailed. But if you look at it, all of it is pointing to great spiritual realities. Now, not to say it wasn't true, it wasn't real. But it was a shadow of something far greater far greater. Even looking at the Passover there, as lambs were slain. If you've been in this church, you know what that points to, don't you? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is why when you have communion here, Ben doesn't go grab a little goat and then slit its throat in front of you and then offer the meat afterwards. Because the blood has already been shed. You don't shed blood. We believe in that one shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's why you don't circumcise your children put the water on them, because the blood again has been shed. The one who had to be cut off was cut off for his people and has reconciled us to God. We don't go worship in one temple somewhere because God has built us into a living temple of living stones together. And though we are scattered all over different places of the visible church of God, we are one church under Christ Jesus. That's why earlier Jonathan could pray for our brothers and sisters elsewhere, not as someone else, but as people with whom we feel sorrow when they're in pain, with whom we rejoice when the church grows. You know, it's very easy to be discouraged when you're in a land where the church is in decline. But if you want encouragement, look, look to the fields abroad. Look to what God is doing and know that this is our family. God is growing elsewhere as well. And he is with us. And you might hear all that and you might say to me, well, okay, well, what does that have to do with me? Now, the context of this epistle, Hebrews, is this. There were Jewish Christians, that's why we say the epistle to the Hebrews, probably from quite a few different churches. And these were not baby Christians who just come to faith. They were a church that had suffered persecution and they behaved admirably, beautifully. They'd, they'd sacrificed so much to help those who were in prison. They, they'd behave just as you'd want them to behave. So they were, they'd been through the fire. And yet now, they're tempted to fall away. And it was written by someone in the Apostle Paul circle. Some say Paul with Luke translating. Some say Barnabas. Martin Luther said maybe Apollos. We don't know. But what they were tempted by was to go back into Judaism. Because Judaism offered so much more, according to them. They thought, Moses, now look at Moses. You know, I spoke to you about what a colossus he was. Look at that golden temple there. In Jerusalem, look at the nice calendar we had as Jews where we had the Sabbaths, we had the Jubilees, we had all the festivals, we pitched our tents at the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember when we did that? And all of that. And thinking now, here we are in a church and it's, it's not got the same glory. Have we sacrificed something? Are we waiting in a vain hope? And so the writer writes to them to encourage them. And he calls Jesus our apostle and high priest. And we don't have time to go into Christ as our high priest tonight, but briefly, 
he is, he's the head of our faith. He's the one who's offered himself as a sacrifice and purified us once and for all. You don't have to, if you died tonight, it wouldn't matter if you'd asked Jesus to forgive your sins five seconds before you died. Because once you'd believed in him, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever thought of the immenseness of that? If you ever have time, go read about someone converted from or about a pagan religion. Or if you know someone that you're really intimate, ask them, is your God, does your God love you? Are you sure when you die, if it's Hindu, reincarnate as someone better or you'll go to heaven? And there's a, I don't think there's really a faith in the world that would say, oh yes, there isn't. But as Christians, we have this great hope because of our great high priest, because we put our faith in, his hope, in what he has done. And this is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is called an apostle. Now, the word apostle means one who is sent. And though this is the only place Jesus is called an apostle, Jesus himself often refers to himself as one sent from the Father. In fact, he tells the disciples, I send you as the Father has sent me. And the Son came. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. He became one of us. He had it harder than Adam. Though he was born sinless, he came the likeness of sinful flesh. Adam never fell sick. Adam never got hurt. Adam didn't have to deal with sinful people, but Jesus did, and yet he was without sin, and he is filled with sympathy for you and me. That is who Jesus is. That is the apostle of our confession. And so how can we be ashamed, brothers? How can we be ashamed to hold when we see him? Well, the issue is we don't see him. We look around us, and so we lose our faith. We waver. We're taken up with the glitter and the glam of the world. Now, I've been away from Holbrooks for that long. I said to Sarah, I was like preaching at a brand new church. But if I to extrapolate from other churches, you probably fall into one of two categories tonight. You're either one of those in the periphery of the church. Do you know what that means? It means you're not at the prayer meeting. It means when you meet a brother and sister afterwards, you can't say to them, how is that doing? I've been praying for you. Because you don't know. You don't know what people are going through. You don't know what the church faces. You don't know how things are done. Why this pulpit that I'm on right now is completely free of dust. How the carpets are done. You don't know if there is a rota. Because you're not in the work. You can go on holiday. And you don't have to tell anyone in the church you're going. Because it doesn't matter if you're there or not. Things will go on. And most of all, if, if Holbrooks were to close down or disappear... It would be inconvenient for you, and you'd feel sad because this is a lovely church that's so warm and welcoming. You have so many memories, but you've not staked your happiness on the future of God's work here. You're on the periphery. And if you watched as many nature documentaries as I have, you know it's the most dangerous place to be when there's a prowling lion about. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with the passage before us? Well, when he talks of having this confidence, it doesn't just mean, have you believed in Jesus? It's boasting. It's utter confidence in God. To give you an example, um, when I was doing a course once, you didn't have any one from Britain, or I think one person was half English. So there were lots of people from all over the world, but there were a lot of Arab Muslims with me. And I, I was born in the Middle East, so got on well with them. But one of the things when you wanted to tell them about Christ, one of the big obstacles was that a lot of them thought England was a Christian nation. And so you'd lost the battle before it began. 
They saw all that went around, and you couldn't really talk about the faith because they weren't interested. And I've always, I've thought in that so many times, and I've thought, if ever anyone says to me, is England a Christian nation? I'd say, look around you. I'll say, what, what is it that gets people's blood boiling? What is it that causes jubilation on the streets? What is it that people live their lives around? What is it that they're excited for? They'll even take time of work if need be that. And it's football, really, isn't it? It's the national religion of England. But that's what it means to be confident. If you are like that about Christ and his work, that's what it means to boast and be confident. It doesn't just mean you have a megaphone in the middle of the street. It means your life reflects that. Now allow me to tell you something about how the Hebrew church reacted when they underwent persecution. And this is from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 onwards. This is what he says. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. So these people had formed a church, they'd come to know God, and you thought, oh no, they're encountering persecution, they're going to fall away now. And they stuck by it. Partly while you were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. There was a lot of stigma attached. If you, if you knew people who were, who were guilty of some crime according to the government, you know, they'd say something like, do you see that Steve? He went to prison and visited that one there. And it might be that while you were out, I heard John Piper say, they'd break into your house because what are you going to do? You're... You're stigmatized. No one on your street's going to tell you. No one's going to help you. No one likes you because you're partaking with these, these criminals. And these Hebrews had so loved Christ's church that they had accepted that. They were so in love with Christ. And brothers and sisters, our confidence is often reflected in how we treat one another. You know, Lord Jesus said, inasmuch as ye have done to the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And John says, if you do not love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Or I'll say to you, if ever a trial came and it became a stigma for you to associate with this church, would you think if you do not stand strong in this day, you would stand strong in that day? And if you looked at our hearts honestly, the answer is no, isn't it? On the other hand, you might be someone who is in the core of the church. And we've just had... Uh, Armistice Day, and you might feel like one of those cavalry officers. You know, in the early days of the war when everyone thought, oh, one more charge and we'll break the lines and we're going home before Christmas. And you're there, you put your helmet on, you charge out, you've mowed down by machine guns, and all it looks like is every day you're more tired, you're more wounded, there's fewer of you, and all of it is just to maintain the line. And it's hard. It's very hard. Well, these Hebrews were tempted after their trials, and it was a puzzle to me, but when you think about it, you can understand, can't you? You know, we'd all been through that together, and we've all acted so lovingly with each other, and everything's been great, and then the trials ended, and 
we're back. We're just back. We're back to where we were. We're having our Sunday fellowship. We're having our meetings. Nothing's changed. And they're saying, is that it? Do we just, is it back to the grind again? But as Christians, we were never meant to look at this world or this time. We're always meant to look to the horizon. We're always meant to look for that dawn when the sun of righteousness would arise, when Christ would give us his, our crowns for what we have done. You know, as, as I was preparing to come here, I was, I was really struck by the number of men who stood here who are no longer with us. Gummer Jones, David Shepherd, Ivor Owens, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I often thought, what is it like when you, when you come to the end of your work? You know, you sort of hang your overalls up, you stick your tools in the shed, and you look back one last time at that vineyard, and you realize the workers will come and go, but that work carries on. You know, the Lord Jesus said, even to the apostles, he said, you're entering into other men's work. This is a work that began a long time ago. This is a work which will long outlast us. The best we can do is pass the torch on and trust the Lord of the harvest. That's all we can do. Good times will come. Great days will come. And we pray that God will bring those, don't we? But there will also be a day of small things. There's always a call for endurance among the saints. You know, think of John and Patmos as he looked to the future. And he said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Last apostle, the apostles were gone. Here we are over 2,000 years later and God's work continues. What we've been through together. And if you read people's testimonies before they came to know Christ, before they were Christians, I really recommend you do this. It will really encourage your heart. If they encountered Christians, think about how they reacted. To them, Christians appeared maybe nice, maybe really loving people, but they didn't get it. They didn't get why we did things we did in the church. They didn't get Christianity. They didn't get God's people. And then they're saved. And then God opens their eyes and they see Christ and suddenly it all makes so much sense. And if Albrooks doesn't make sense to someone who doesn't know Christ, I think that's a compliment, don't you? If this is God's house, you don't know the Lord of the house, well then the house will not make sense to you. Jesus said, I remember a sermon of R.C. Sproul's I had to feed my sheep and he pointed out he didn't say leave a little something to get the goats in as well, did he? And we, as a church, as God's people, we do things to feed God's sheep, and God's sheep will come. And there is, come think of, and we pray for revival. We pray here, I'm sure. We pray at Durbar. I know we pray at Bulkington. We pray that God's spirit would move, that people would come to know faith, not because we want the pews a bit more filled, not because we're worried about the collection, but because we have this great hope in us, and it's so hard to share. We live in a world that's not just anti-Christian, it's post-Christian. They've heard it all. They know all your tactics. They don't need you to tell them about it. They don't want you to tell them. Keep it at home. Keep it in the church. And your heart goes out. Sometimes it's your own kids. Sometimes it's your own family. And though they're right there with you, they could be a thousand miles away for all that you can reach them. And we should hope in God that he can work. But we should also have that statement of Daniel's friends when they said to Nebuchadnezzar, you know, 
about God delivering them from the furnace. But if not, we will not bow. But if not, that is the call to endurance. And as we close tonight, I would like to read to you from the very end there at Revelation 14, 12. I mentioned John, the island of Patmos. I don't know if probably by the time he was the last living apostle. And if you read the New Testament, you know they've already been through so many things in the church. There have been so many wolves have come. You only read the letter to the seven churches. You know there have been horrific things that have happened. And Nero's there persecuting the church and it's spreading. And John's not going to be there. The apostles aren't going to be there. It's just going to be the word written down once and for all. And he's, he's, he's sending the ship off almost. And yet there is this beautiful verse right there in Revelation 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And may God grant that to us. May God grant that his work prosper. May God grant we will be faithful to the end. As that hymn says, for all the saints who from the labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Our final hymn this evening is, uh, I will announce it slowly as the music group make their way up, is, uh, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine.
do not deserve your gospel, Lord. We think of you, the most perfect Son of God, eternal loving fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet you came. You came and you dwelt among us, and you suffered and died for our sins, and you rose again. You are not ashamed to call us brothers, Lord. You're not ashamed of us. And oh, Lord, how often are we ashamed of you? Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Establish us firm in our confidence. Bind us together as a fellowship. Oh, Lord, we pray that your work would carry on. Lord, that if it is your will, we may see a rich harvest in our days. That men and women would come to the faith, Lord. That we'd see Satan confounded. And Lord, that this place would be a great light in the midst of darkness. We ask all these things for thy sake, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.